Lord, we thank you for the written history of how you worked uh, among your people and among your enemies. I thank you, Lord, for your merciful justice, which is a mystery to us and which draws us in. Lord, we pray that you would unfold your word to us in a way that would help us regain our trust in you where it has been lost. And we pray that that trust would lead to worship and praise and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, we're well into our series on Exodus called Encountering God in a Disenchanted Age. Disenchanted Age is an age where it's harder to believe than not to believe. Just by default, it's easier to uh, doubt God's existence and, and doubt that he's good for us and doubt that we can know him. Like Moses, like Israel, uh, like the Egyptians, we need to encounter the real God in all of his love and holiness uh, and, and uh, his faithfulness. We've been tracking with each sermon a different aspect of God as he is revealed in the book of Exodus. And today, we're looking at God's merciful justice, God's merciful justice. Brian Tracy said, the glue that holds all relationships together, including the relationship between the leader and the led, is trust. I'll say it again. The glue that holds all relationships together, including the relationship between the leader and the led, is trust. We can adapt that to say the glue that holds our relationship with God together is trust. The glue that holds our, our worship uh, of God, uh, the, the glue that helps us worship God is trust. If we don't trust God, we will not follow him. If we do not trust God, we will not learn from him. If we do not trust God, we will not worship him. And so how strong is the glue this morning between yourself and the living God? Do you trust him? Do you trust God's integrity? Do you trust God's goodness in every situation to you and to everyone else? How strong is that trust? For some of us, the glue is really strong. We really do believe the gospel as it's revealed in Jesus Christ. And we love God right now, not perfectly, but with our whole hearts. And we, we honor him and we enjoy close communion with him. Now, for others uh, here, the glue has completely rubbed off if it ever was there in the first place. And right now, you're sitting here, and it is really hard for you to trust God. It's really hard for you uh, to, to worship him, to believe that he's real. Um, maybe we've witnessed or endured great suffering. You've lost someone that you really care about, or something evil has happened, and you've witnessed it, or you've suffered through it. And so it's really hard for you to trust God. Therefore, it's hard for you to learn from him, worship him, follow him, etc. For a lot of us, it's very much in between. The level of adhesive power between us and the living God is like kind of a mix. Some days, we're full of trust, and we're praying naturally and everything else, but other days, we feel completely alone in the world, and it's as if God doesn't exist, or if he does exist, he's not worthy of trust, and he's not worthy to be worshiped. Um, now, here's, there's, if we could talk all day and solve all the trust issues in God. I would do that because it matters that much. But there's one specific issue that we've really got to talk about today. And it is the issue of when we open the Bible, and especially when we open the Old Testament, and we see God displaying his judgment on his enemies. When we see God displaying his judgment on his enemies, man, sometimes our the level of, adhesive power goes down, way down. 
And we're like, I don't know if I want to worship or follow this God. I'm good maybe with Jesus Christ, but maybe there feels like a disconnect between the God as he's portrayed in the Old Testament and the God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. Um, this is really important because um, when, we, when we read about God bringing plagues into the country of Egypt or bringing physical death to people before their old age or sending his people into exile or whatever the issue may be, um, uh, it can loosen our trust in God and then um, we become unable to worship him like we really need to because you and I need to be able to open the Old Testament, understand what it's talking about and see God's goodness, not his partial goodness, or his, oh, this is like an evolution of God's goodness, it gets better. No, even in the Old Testament, we can see God's absolute, the absolute depths of his goodness, and we need to see it this morning. Uh, so my goal for this teaching is that God's merciful justice would restore the trust we need to worship God. I want you to see God's merciful justice because the truth is that God is both merciful, he's 100% merciful, and he's 100% just. It's not 50-50. It's not a hybrid. It's like Jesus Christ, he's fully God and he's fully man, and there's a mystery about that. How can you be both fully God and fully man? Well, only God can, can do that, and only God can be fully merciful and fully just at the same time. Now, undoubtedly, there are mysterious depths to this merciful justice that you or I, in our limited human reason, won't be able to fully unpack or understand even though the Enlightenment promises that reason can do that. Reason can't do that. Reason has, uh, has a function, but that's not one of its functions. Worship is the function uh, that we need to respond to God being 100% merciful and 100% just in the same person, in the same God. It's a tension that is perfectly maintained in Exodus, and it's perfectly maintained in Judges and Ruth and Joshua and the whole Old Testament and the whole of Scripture all the way to the end of Revelation. Perfectly merciful, perfectly just, neither sacrificing either. So there are three ways I want you to see God's merciful justice, okay? There's three ways, and they're revealed in this text that we see, a undoubtedly long text, but I cut out a lot of the plagues, okay? So we're gonna look at two. We're gonna look at two plagues, and in these two plagues, we're gonna see glimpses um, and assurances of God's merciful justice, okay? The first one, the first way that God is merciful and just at the same time is through something we'll call creative confrontation. Creative confrontation. Has anyone ever creatively confronted you? Where you, you came away loving them more and feeling good about yourself, but then more in line with reality? Creative confrontation is something that God invented and that all of God's people can learn how to do. And if you start worshiping God and following God, Jesus can teach you creative confrontation, okay? And God displays creative confrontation with Pharaoh. When I was 12 years old, I was on a cross-country trip with my grandparents. We were uh, going, uh, yeah, in their RV across the country, and at one point, um, I, I don't know why, but I needed the keys to the RV. Maybe my cousin and I would need to get back into it at some point. So my grandpa was like, here you go, Aaron, Gave me the keys. My cousin and I, we went off, had a great time. Later on that evening, my grandfather said, Aaron, we need to get back in the RV. We need to, we need to get going. Can you give me the keys? Uh-oh. Wait, oh, 
the keys, right, 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 right. He trusted me with the keys, and so I went out, and I looked for the keys and the picnic table, under the picnic table. I was looking, like, under the wheels of the RV and everything, and, and I was so distraught. And I came to my grandfather, who was a gentle and kind Canadian. <laughs> Seriously. And I was like, Grandpa, I lost the keys. I lost the keys. I don't know where they are. And he put his arm around me, and he said, Aaron, here are the keys. And this is what tough love looks like. You see, my grandfather, don't hate him, my grandfather wanted to help me get in line with reality. And he allowed me to experience some low-level, low-risk distress to help me come in line with reality so that as an adult, I wouldn't be leaving my keys everywhere, leaving my wallet everywhere, even though I still do sometimes, but I do it less. <laughs> Because of the creative confrontation of my kind and gentle Canadian grandfather who loved me, loved me enough to give me some tough love. This is just one picture of how God is treating Pharaoh in the plagues. They're all an expression of toughness, yes, but love, of love, increasing in severity each time, each plague goes from nuisance to more nuisance to really dangerous, and each time there's an opportunity for Pharaoh to turn around. This is creative confrontation. Now listen, Pharaoh's relationship with the Nile was uh, really complicated. The Nile River brought incredible wealth to Egypt, and therefore it made Pharaoh really powerful. It irrigated all the crops. It made the soil really fertile. It brought in birds. It brought in fish. And all of this meant more power for Pharaoh and more wealth for Pharaoh. There was even a god named Hapi. Hapi, H-A-P-I, was the god of the Nile, which they worshiped as, well, this is the god, this is like, it's like Americans worshiping money. This is what makes us awesome. And Pharaoh's like, this, the Nile River, this god Hapi is the true god because this is how I've been able to harness this little bit of creation, and now I'm untouchable. Now I'm the greatest superpower in the world. Now I've got all this army of slaves. I don't need to listen. He says in Exodus 5.1, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? He's got the Nile River. So the Lord's going to do something amazing, which he's going to use a very tangible sermon illustration that's going to change Pharaoh's life. He's going to change the Nile into blood. He's going to pollute the Nile until it becomes a biohazard. So if you look with me, in verse 14 of Exodus 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned to a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far... You have not obeyed. Okay, so he's about to take a bath in his source of power, like Uncle Scrooge swimming in his gold, or he's just, he's going to take a bath in his power. He's going to take a bath in his money, maybe to worship. And so Moses is interrupting his worship with the staff of the Lord saying, you must stop this worship and you must let the people go. Don't let your heart be hardened. And so if you, if you don't, there's gonna be some tough love. So verse 16 uh, uh, sorry, verse 17, 
Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. So Pharaoh should have been devastated by this plague. This should have been the, the, the heart change moment for him where he turns around and he sees that the Lord is God over Hopi, that I need to stop worshiping and trusting Hopi, that I need to stop worshiping and trusting my relationship with the Nile. This should have been the moment, but it wasn't the moment. He hardened his heart. Even though his source of power got turned to blood, he wouldn't listen. Yet this was the Lord being created. He was uh, being mercifully just through creative confrontation with Pharaoh, trying to get Pharaoh's attention. One of my friends uh, and fellow church planters had a moment like this with the Lord. And this is where he was in college. He was an amazing football player, and he had a bright uh, future as a football player for, for his income, for his fame, for that matter. And he got a devastating injury his freshman year in college. And uh, in his freshman year in college, that's when Jesus Christ encountered him. He turned to Jesus Christ, began following him, stopped worshiping the God of football. Football's good, but if you worship it as a God and trust it to provide all your needs, it's going to let you down. And it let him down. But thankfully, through this act of creative confrontation, my friend and fellow church planter turned to the Lord, and it changed his life forever. All of us need this. All of us need some creative confrontation sometimes where our source of trust breaks down, where it stops coming through for us. We've got our own version of the Nile River where we've been able to harness creation in some way. We've been able to harness our beauty. We've been able to harness money. We've been able to uh, harness our intellect, our education, and we use it to prop our ego up. We use it to distance ourselves from God. We use it to say, I'm good. I don't need God. I don't need grace. When God pollutes our version of the Nile, this is our opportunity to turn to him in his merciful justice and worship him, to stop trusting the Nile and start trusting the living God. So Pharaoh resists this act of severe mercy. Verse, the second half of verse 22 of Exodus 7 says this. So Pharaoh's heart, is, yeah, this is 22, second half of verse 22. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went to his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink. This is verse 24. For they could not drink the water of the Nile. Do you see the merciful justice even then? So even then, the Lord is building in a way out. He's giving the Egyptians, yes, it's a little harder to drink water. But notice, this is not the Lord bringing death to Egypt. A Nile that was turned to blood could have been death, but the Lord did not pollute uh, these water sources. So even here, the Lord is giving them a way out. If only Pharaoh would have listened, these nuisances, the nuisances of the Nile becoming blood and the nuisances of later frogs and gnats and flies would turn to outbreaks, outbreaks of boils, outbreaks of plagues on the cattle. And then when nuisances wouldn't work and then when outbreaks wouldn't work, uh, then uh, there, was, um, there was destruction, destruction of crops and destruction of lives. And at each stage, the Lord said, turn around, turn to me. Trust my merciful justice and let the people of Israel go. And each time, Pharaoh said no. So even then, there's a new form of severe mercy, not just creative confrontation,
but safe shelter, safe shelter. We are in monsoon season here in Chicago, and yesterday I was very thankful to be sheltered. We stayed inside and played chess and drank hot chocolate yesterday. It was so wonderful to not be drowning out there. Um, So the Lord wants Pharaoh and all of Egypt to take safe shelter even during the plagues. He even gives Pharaoh an opportunity to take safe shelter from his judgment. This is merciful judgment, uh, merciful justice. So turn to Exodus 9 and verse 13. It's there in your readings, Exodus 9, verse 13. Let's look at safe shelter. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Verse 14, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, don't miss this. Um, Even if Pharaoh doesn't listen to, to God's instructions, he will use Pharaoh to bring other people to a saving knowledge of, of the Lord. Um, so uh, Psalm, one of the Psalms says, the name of the Lord is like a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. Now, God is saying, Pharaoh, I'm a, you should take shelter in me. But if you won't take shelter in me, I'm going to use you to proclaim my name in all the earth and other people will take shelter in me. This is merciful justice and he's still doing that today. Verse 15, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. I could have just killed you. I mean, I'm the Lord for goodness sakes and you have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, even under threat of hail, the Lord's saying, I'm going to send huge, enormous hail, and it's going to devastate and kill your crops, and it's going to devastate and kill your servants and uh, your, your livestock, but you have an opportunity to give them safe shelter. Verse 18 of Exodus 9 describes it. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on him. Now this is amazing. Even Egyptians, even Pharaoh is given an opportunity to save his livestock and save his servants. This is God's broader invitation to the whole earth. Second Peter 3, 9 says that the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Not wishing anybody to perish, but wanting all to reach repentance. And there are many Egyptians that said yes to this opportunity. Verse 20 of chapter 9, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, don't miss that. This is an important phrase. Hurried their slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord, Pharaoh and and, and others, left his slaves and livestock into the field. Here's a question for you. Who are the people of God in Exodus? Who are the people of God in the Old Testament? 
the people that obeyed the word of the Lord. That's it. That included Hebrews, but it was, it also, you know who it included? Egyptians. And it included many other tribes and many other peoples. From the very beginning, God's people was a multi-ethnic, multi-tribe, multi-language people. Uh, Exodus 12, 38 says that a mixed multitude also went up with him. That's not in your text. That's just later reference. It's very likely that many Egyptians not only took shelter here, but took shelter under the blood of the lamb later on during the Passover. And Exodus tells us that Egyptians went with the Hebrews through the Red Sea and became part of the people of God. The people of God in Exodus are the people who obeyed the word of the Lord. And the people who were not the people of God were the people who did not obey the word of the Lord. The Lord desires all people to be saved. He is giving Pharaoh an opportunity to be saved. This is incredible. And even then, he's saying, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to make you a means of salvation for other people so that my name be known throughout all the earth. Now, these plagues are a consequence of Pharaoh's sin. Pharaoh is is enslaving people, and he's extracting value from them, and the Lord is sending hail, and he is destroying that value, the value brought by slaves. He's tearing at the natural forces of creation, and creation is being torn back at him. It's like when Pharaoh's breaking God's commands, he's breaking himself and his country over the commands of God. Yet even as Pharaoh hardens himself to God and tears his country apart, God provides the safe shelter, and he does the same for us. And there is no safer shelter than the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took upon himself all of God's judgment in its full force, in its full depth, in its full mystery. He took upon God's judgment. He took upon all of the plagues, all of the spiritual darkness, all of the physical pain, all of the separation from God. He did it so that he could shelter us. He could be our shelter. We could run to him and be saved. The name of Jesus Christ is our shelter from God's judgment. And this symbol of the cross of Christ, the reality of the cross of Christ, is the ultimate safe shelter, and all of us can run into it. Every person on the earth, every person here can run for the first time or for for the 10th time to the cross of Christ, take shelter under God's judgment. Christ's blood has delivered us from sin. The moral consequences of our behavior when we have torn at creation, and creation is, is torn in our presence, when we have hurt or used other people, when we have sought shelter in the wrong forces, the cross of Christ can heal us, forgive us, and make us right with God. God is good all the way down to his bones. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your worship. He comes to us with creative confrontation. He offers us safe shelter. And then finally, final act of God's merciful justice is the honoring of the human will. The honoring of the human will. Do you know that your choices matter to God? You may not think they do, but your choices matter to God. He takes them seriously. He treats us as the responsible moral agents that we are. A lot of us don't take our sin that seriously. We're like, why the cross, why blood? We don't need, we don't need the cross. We don't need the, why couldn't God just say, I forgive you? And still, wouldn't he still be God? God is not arbitrary in his forgiveness. God takes the moral order of the universe very seriously because he created it. And he takes you seriously as a moral agent in the world. And he's not gonna force you to do something that you're set on not doing. 
He won't coerce you into loving him. He won't coerce you into obeying him. He certainly invites, and he certainly corrects. He even sacrifices his own life to woo us to his love. He's done everything to woo us, but he will not force us. Dallas Willard said this, the kingdom of man, you can think about your choices, what you do with your money, your time, what you worship. Um, The kingdom of man, kingdom of people, is the realm of human life, that tiny part of visible reality where human will, for a time, has some degree of sway, even contrary to God's will. So the kingdom of man, the kingdom of human people, is this tiny part of visible reality that has a sway, even if it's contrary to God's will. And God will not force our will. He will invite and woo. He takes it seriously. So um, if there's ultimately something else that we're bent on getting, God will usually let us have it. And God's wrath, God's wrath is not vindictive anger. God's wrath is us letting us have something apart from him that we really want. And so most of the time, God's wrath doesn't feel like anything at all. It feels like us getting exactly what we wanted. We should be, we should fear God's wrath. But don't think that it's going to come in the form of the way you express wrath. Because the way we express wrath is, is, is in unbridled rage. That is not the Lord. Let's observe the Lord taking Pharaoh's will very seriously, actually. Verse 34 of Exodus 9. Verse 34 of Exodus 9. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, now this came after Pharaoh said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I'm sorry, sorry. And, and, the, and the hail stopped, and he saw that it stopped. He sinned yet again, verse 34 says. He sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The story of Exodus is in some way the story of two hearts. The story of two hearts. On the one hand, there's Moses' heart, which if you've been tracking the series, Moses' heart is pretty stubborn. It's pretty, pretty willful. You know what I mean? He's a natural leader, so he's hard for the Lord to lead. And he's got a lot of hangups. He's got a lot of issues and a lot of hurts. And yet... As the story progresses, Moses' heart towards God gets softer and softer and softer, and he begins to learn how to worship, and he, he, he begins to learn how to obey God, and God does great things through him. They have this amazing partnership together because he surrenders his tender heart to God one step at a time. That's one heart. The other heart is Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's heart bro- grows progressively harder and more calcified with each overture of God. Harder and harder and harder. Both men are sowing choices that become habits, that become character, that become destiny. Both men. But they're going in two different directions. One is going to further hardness towards God, and one is going towards greater softness towards God. And I see this all the time as a pastor. This is still a reality in our world. It's our human condition. It's my human condition. I've had Pharaoh seasons in my life. And I've had Moses seasons in my life. But there is never a day where my heart is not growing more tender towards God 
or more hard towards God. And I have often needed the mercy of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to make my heart more like Moses' heart and less like Pharaoh's heart. Either way, God respects what we choose. Pharaoh is described as having a hardened heart. God hardened his heart, and he also hardened his own heart. Now, as one pastor says, that doesn't sound right to our ears. We're like, how, how, how is it just for God to harden Pharaoh's heart and then judge him for that? There's an interplay between God's sovereignty, meaning his, his, he rules, and he's working the situation out for good, as well as Pharaoh's choices, and they interplay with one another. Two things are happening. Number one, Pharaoh is making his own choices. Number two, God is working to save his people. And God will use anybody, whether you have a hard heart or a soft heart, to bring his good salvation, his good kingdom to the earth. Here's what one theologian said about this passage. The Lord does not put forth all his mighty power at once. His ways with sinners are patient and probationary, as if he were advancing by trial and error. Isn't that interesting? That God works almost by trial and error in his ways with us, in his ways with Pharaoh. He will not overwhelm the sinner before full opportunity has been given for repentance and amendment of life. The God of providence is so very long-suffering. The God of providence is so very long-suffering, and he gives us, he gives Pharaoh every opportunity he can to turn around and stop being um, an oppressive bonehead. Um, So here are Pharaoh's last words to Moses, and really his last words to God. If you look at Exodus 10, verse 28, and that's also printed in your programs. Exodus 10, 28. This is after the final plague of darkness. Pharaoh said to Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. He's threatening Moses' life, and he's telling him, get out of my face I'm not listening to you anymore. The line of communication between us is broken. Verse 29, Moses says, as you say, I will not see your face again. As you say, thy will be done. As C.S. Lewis says, there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Pharaoh is the second kind of person. God's wrath lets him get what, exactly what he wants. No more Moses, no more staff of the Lord, no more warnings. Let me be. I'm just going to keep swimming in the Nile River, worshiping Hopi, enslaving the people of Israel. Get out of my face. Who is the Lord? God desires all people to be saved in the end. But in the end, he will say, as you say, thy will be done. The Lord, the living God, is fully merciful, and he is fully just. And there's about a billion different ways for him to show that. But we see in the gospel according to Exodus that God creatively confronts. He provides safe shelter whenever he can. And in the end, he honors the human will, treating us 
as the moral agents that he created us to be. He's good all the way down to his bones. He is a God with the character that we can trust to the point where we can respond to him with a more tender heart as we age, as we suffer, as we read the Old Testament and struggle with it. Ultimately, we can read the Old Testament with confidence that this is, dis- this is displaying and describing a very good God who is very merciful and very just. And we can respond to him like Moses responded to him, saying, thy will be done, getting tender, getting soft, following him, worshiping him, ultimately because he is a God that can be trusted. And I just want to warn you against resisting this God, letting your heart become hardened towards him, failing to see how merciful he is, failing to appreciate how good his justice is for you, for everyone you love, and for the world. When we trust him, we can worship him. And when we worship him, we can open our hearts to him and follow him. When we follow him, we can say to Jesus Christ, teach me how to live in this world and teach me how to follow you and teach me about how to find my calling. It is only when we see the goodness of God and his merciful justice that we will come to know him as he is. Let me uh, invite you to stand and pray for you. Let us pray. Father, you are good. You are perfectly merciful and perfectly just. And sometimes we need help seeing that. We have so much, uh, in terms of cultural lenses, when we come to the Old Testament. We pray that you would unfold your merciful justice to us to the point where we can turn to you and say, you are good to worship you, to follow you, to keep reading the Bible, to keep learning from you to take safe shelter under your cross when you have given us a life-saving word. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.